This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with Performance Director at Belgium Hockey, Adam Commons. He discusses their talent identification process, both for players and staff, ingraining himself in the culture of Belgium and lessons learned while working in the country, as well as his transition from Australia to Belgium. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, please make sure you share it with friends and family. I hope you enjoy. Perfect. So, Adam, uh, really appreciate you jumping on. Um, how are things your end? Are you all good? Yeah, everything going well here. Beautiful sunny day here in Belgium. So uh, it's always a bit more enjoyable when you're out on a hockey pitch and the sun is shining. Perfect. So obviously you've alluded to there kind of your your sport, which is, is, is hockey. For people that don't know you, do you just want to explain, I guess, how you got into it, why, why you got into it and what you do at the moment? Yeah, so I got into hockey. I grew up on a farm in a, a small uh, place called Urungili, which is about five hours southwest of uh, of Sydney uh, in Australia. And I um, I got into hockey through my parents, who both played, and and uh, in the end, we started a small hockey club in in Wagga Wagga, or you know, a town nearby. And and I played all my junior hockey there and, and, and then progressed through representative teams. I played for New South Wales uh, in the Australian Hockey League and, and ultimately I was selected in the Australian men's hockey team. I played for Australia for eight years. I went to the Sydney Olympics, won a bronze medal. I went to a couple of World Cups with silver in uh, 2002, Commonwealth Games gold. Uh, so I had a, had a nice career, 143 games for Australia. After that, I um, I moved to Belgium to uh, become a professional hockey player in Belgium. Uh, it's almost like a, a winding down of your career, if you like. I'd finished playing internationally. I was I was twenty eight. I retired pretty young, um, and I had an opportunity to to like captain coach a team uh, in Antwerp in Belgium, and I um. I uh, I did that for three years and, and I suppose right place at the right time, I ended up being offered to coach the Belgian national men's team and I did that for four years uh, before coaching Australia for six years, Australian women's team and for the last uh, six and a bit years, I've been the high performance director of the Belgian Hockey Federation and it's been a great uh, ride with our men's team uh, being the world champions, the European champions and Olympic champions in that period. So it's been a, a really great roller coaster ride uh, with the team that I, I started my international coaching career with and, and now as a performance director, it's been great to see many of those guys succeed. Um, so I've had great experience with my sport. Yeah, it just sounds it. I think that um, there's loads of avenues we could go down with this one. I think you've got so many experiences. So we'll try and dive in uh, as, as much as we can for the, the time we've got. Um, I guess the the first thing that I kind of pick on there is that, you know, performance director role. What does that actually entail from a day to day basis? What, what what are you looking at and what structures and stuff are you looking to put in place to, I guess, secure the type of performance and success that you've mentioned there? Yeah, I think in every uh, country or organisation, the performance director role will vary a little bit. So I can explain how I fit into the organisation here in Belgium. Um, so I work with the staff of both the, 
Belgian men's hockey team and the Belgian women's hockey team. Uh, that's my primary role. So I work with the coaching staff and, but also the support staff. So I'm responsible for um, hiring and 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 managing those staff. And and I, I quite often say to them, I'm here to help facilitate the program that you would like to put in place. But uh, in the Belgian Hockey Federation, we have some overarching principles that we want to put into place. So, you know, with regards to um, the, the types of coaches that we employ, employ the type of staff that we employ, um, we don't go down the route of allowing the head coach to just uh, pick his entire or her entire staff. Um, we, we like to, to have some continuity. And, and so I'm, I'm overseeing that. Uh, in addition, I also oversee the, um, the youth development pathway. So all of the coaches for our under 21 and under 18, under 16, under 15s. I have two coach managers that assist me with that. Uh, and finally, probably, um, one of the, the other important aspects of the role is that I'm in charge of, um, doing all the funding submissions to our stakeholders. Uh, so that we can actually run the programs that we would like to put into place. So I work closely with our Olympic Committee and uh, the government funding arms um, in Belgium. It's called Sport Vlaanderen and ADEPS, uh, as well as uh, um, our governing body, the, the Belgian Hockey Federation. Yeah, you'd hope with uh, good performances that funding would be a little bit easier to get, I'd imagine. Um... But in terms of, you mentioned there kind of the overarching principles, um, I think that's a really interesting one. So in terms of the people that you're trying to hire, because I think it's important to differentiate maybe between a coach and a player and all that type of stuff. What type of people are you guys looking for in your organisation to, you know, if you are attracting a new head coach, what are you looking for for them as a person, first of all? Yeah, look, that's really important. And um, when when I'm talking with potential coaches, you know, one of the things that's really important for us is where do they see themselves in two, three, four, ten years. Um, if they see our organisation as one that they would like to work for in the, in the longer term, um, we also want to have a, a sense of, of people that, that really care about those that, that, work, that they work with, so the athletes that they work with, that's really important for us. Um, of course, they need to have a certain level of expertise. Um, if you were to have a look at our men's staff, for example, at the last Olympic Games, we had three coaches that had worked as head coaches of other international teams at Olympic and, and World Championship events. So there was a lot of experience and expertise there. But, but more importantly, I felt that they really fit together well. So they had... Um, uh, diversity of opinion and, and thought. Uh, they, they didn't all, they weren't all the same type of leader. Um, and so we're, we're looking for that as well, uh, diversity in, in our staff. Um, and, and yeah, ultimately, I think it, it's really important that, that they have, as I mentioned, that expertise, but they're good people and they have a long-term view uh, for working in our organisation and, and they can see that they, and they're really passionate about trying to bring um, added value to our organisation. And so they're some of the key things that we look for. One of the other things maybe to highlight is that we we run a, a targeted um, recruitment strategy um, where 
not really an organization that in the past has advertised uh, open advertisements. So we, we look at what types of coaches do we think will fit into our organization and which ones would we like to have involved. And then we go out and, and we have conversations with them and, and see if they, we believe they'd be a good fit. Um, that's stood us or stood the test of time, um, over the last years and, and we're really pleased with the results that we've been able to achieve um, by doing that. And it's not to say that we won't have uh, sort of open ad advertisements uh, in, um, in the future, but um, uh, that's how we run it now. Yeah, I think that's a, a really interesting space, that one between opening out to having, I guess, a more direct line. Um, one question around that, how do you ensure that you get um trying to phrase this the right way. So I've spoken to individuals before that are talking about esports, for example, and they say quite a lot of esports teams are made up of people that know someone in the building, um, mm. which obviously has its positives but also has a benefit uh, its uh, negatives in terms of being very close. So how do you guys with that target recruitment, if you like, make sure it isn't just someone that you know, but actually it's someone maybe that you know of who's an excellent practitioner where you're kind of sourcing the best people rather than it just being, you know, friends, not friendship based, but connection and network based where there might be someone that sits outside your traditional pool who actually is a pr brilliant practitioner who works in a obscure part of Belgium or obscure place elsewhere. Yeah, I'd like to think that we're quite open-minded in the in the people that, that we uh, seek to, to work with. Um, if I'm to give an example with our men's team, we have a, a an English goalkeeper trainer who lives in Switzerland. Uh, we have a, an assistant coach at South African that lives in Ireland and he flies in uh, each week. Um, we have a Dutch head coach, uh, our previous head coach was from New Zealand. Um, we've got an Australian performance director. Um, quite often I get questioned about uh, Belgian staff. The rest of our staff, so our medical staff and, and physical trainer uh, and, and physiotherapist are from Belgium. Um, so we're quite diverse in that and we, we, within the hockey fraternity, if you like, we, or the hockey community, we, um, we, we know of experts around the world. And if we believe someone would be a good fit in Belgium, we won't hesitate to, to ring someone from, uh, from Australia or from New Zealand or from the U S or from England, uh, or from across the border in the Netherlands or Germany and, and ask them to join. Um, and as I mentioned at the start, just uh, having an open mind and really thinking outside the box. Um, at the same time, we, we really are working hard in Belgium uh, in educating and providing a pathway for some of the young Belgian talented coaches that are coming through. Uh, there are a lot of advantages from having a, a Belgian leader in terms of uh, native language. Um, but in Belgium, that's a, that's a different... Um, um, what might I say, challenge that we have, that we do have two languages here, Flemish and French. And so in, in hockey, we've chosen to, to use English as our coaching language. Um, if you think about the diversity of the backgrounds of our coaches, that also is a reason, but it's a neutral, seen as a neutral language and that's why we uh, do it in that way. I hope that answered your question. Yeah, no, Dean, I, I, as you alluded to there, that diversity of opinion kind of with all those cultures and stuff fitting in is really good. 
in terms of you mentioned they're kind of being um, like national hires where the coaching staff will provide a bit of continuity behind that. That's something we're seeing quite a lot in a, a lot of sports now um, where, you know, a new coach will go in and he might take an assistant with him. But there's actually some staff that, I guess, uphold the, um, you know, the workings of the club, but also the Tottenham way or the Man United way or the whatever way you want to call it. Yeah. How do you integrate those teams together from an initial point of view? Because obviously you'll have some people that have been in-house that are used to working in a particular way with particular staff members. Then you might have mm. someone coming in from Australia or the States or wherever that I guess wants to integrate and maybe a new style or new framework or something like that. So how do you go around, I guess, that initial process of integration of staff and making sure that... Um, all the skill sets are being as utilized as possible. Yeah, I mentioned before the importance that we place on continuity. And if you have a look at uh, the head coaches that we have in place now, um, both of them started uh, in our pathway as uh, assistant coaches. Uh, and then the head coach, the previous head coaches moved out of their roles and, and then an assistant coach took over. So there's that uh, continuity and that's strategic. We try to always employ assistant coaches that we feel that one day in future, maybe they have the potential to be a head coach. It doesn't always work that way. It can be that they're poached away to be head coach of another nation from that assistant role. Um, and furthermore, you know, like uh, our under 21 men's and women's coaches, we like to think that they could one day move to assistant coach and then one day move to, to head coach. So that's really important. Another factor that I think um, uh, differentiates the Belgian hockey model to some other models that I've worked in is that we have a, a bottom-up approach to our philosophy and our way of play. And what I mean by that is that we have from under 15, under 16, under 18 and under 21, we have six principles that we play with with the ball and six without the ball. And they don't change if we get a new head coach in, in the role. The new head coach doesn't come in and say, this is how we play at the top. And I want that specific way of play to be played in all of our youth teams. And the reason we do that is because head coaches, you know, they have a, a short lifespan. You know, if you're a head coach of a national team for eight years, that's a, an eternity. Um, I don't know that there's many out there that, that have lasted long longer than that currently. And so we want to have a specific way of play that we feel will give our players a really excellent basic way of playing and that they will understand the game. And then when they get into the national side, then they'll be able to adopt the, the methods of play or the way of play of that particular head coach based on that really solid grounding that they've received in our with our youth teams. Have you had that tested by failure yet? So if, if I look at it, I'm a Tottenham fan. So it's a good example of this is Jose Mourinho, for example, is probably very far removed from what a Tottenham fan myself would like to see and yeah. have traditionally seen. Probably got to that point because there wasn't success, not winning anything and kind of the ownership, it felt like, made a decision of like, right, we're going to go to win and we're going to break our mould of 
what we want the Tottenham team to be in order to get that success. Have you had that dilemma yet in terms of teams not performing as you'd want or not having success you thought you have and where there's a discussion to go, do we keep aligning to these philosophical thoughts or do we maybe go and get a high-profile coach that is doing really, really well at the moment but it kind of breaks how strategically we want to play or want to work? Yeah, like I was saying, you know, at the top, our, our head coach has full license in how they would like to play. Um, usually it's pretty well aligned to our, our way of play uh, in, in the youth uh, teams. Um, so so at, at this point in time, there's not been too big a disconnect. There have been some moments where we say, okay, the, the style of play that we see from our national teams is is maybe uh, a little different to how we, we see it played at, at a youth level. However, um, when we're to consider the principles that we're putting into place with our youth teams, um, there we don't focus a lot on, on results. So are we winning medals at, at the youth level or the junior level? We, um, we look at are we producing talents that are good enough to go into our senior team? And they can add value and make a difference over time, and and so we don't particularly look at necessarily the results only. Of course, there are mental um, uh, aspects to to winning. If you have a, a junior team that comes through and they they win all of the tournaments through all of the age groups, they then go into the senior program and they're used to defeating other high profile nations or very strong nations, and so they carry on that. Uh, if you like winning mentality into the senior program so there is importance to it but it's not the only thing that uh, we're looking at and for you as a personal perspective obviously you mentioned you kind of began your initial coaching journey if you like in Belgium then went back to Australia and now I've come back in a, in a slightly different role how did you have to adapt as an individual to I guess the different cultures and different demands and was there a big a big difference between the two or did you see some similarities between the setup and how um, you were able to coach or how you wanted to coach or philosophies you wanted to bring in it's a really good question and and it's um something that i think has helped shape my career as a, a coach and as a leader is to understand that not every country has the same culture and it might seem that it's like really, you know, that's of course, that's logical, that's rational, and that really makes sense. But um, when you have, uh, when you have uh, Belgium and then you've got 50 kilometers over the border, you've got the Netherlands and the cultures are so different between the two, it's, um, you know, it, it becomes really clear. And when I first started with Belgium, I suppose I tried to implement uh, the the hockey philosophy, uh, the athletic philosophy, uh, the sporting philosophy that we have in in Bel uh, sorry in Australia, and uh, and I quickly found out that that didn't work in Belgium, and um, and I needed to adapt to the culture that we have here in Belgium. In Belgium, study and work is is number one and it will be on place number one two and three and then sport sort of comes in at a lower priority and and you know to give an example when i was coaching belgium there were players you know majority of the time would retire at age 
24, 25 to begin their, their working career. They didn't see it as a, uh, a professional um, sporting career. Um, they, they said, okay, that's a hobby that I do and then I'm going to move into, uh, into my next, next phase of my life when I, when I turn 25. That's very different now. We've had the sporting success, of course. But probably to continue the story, then when I moved back to Australia, um, I, I struggled a bit to fit back into the Australian culture. Um, the culture in Belgium was was very different, and um, and and when I came back, I probably tried to implement some of the Belgian culture into into how we we did things in Australia. And it took me a while to get readjusted to to the Australian culture and and athletes that were willing to to put um, their sport as priority number one. And, and, and even then, within the time that I was there over six years, then we saw an evolution of, of athletes' attitudes and, and uh, different generations, you know. I was coaching athletes that were, you know, early 30s and, and athletes that were 17 or 18. And the difference between those generations within the Australian sporting culture was a real challenge uh, to manage as well. And then finally coming back to, to Belgium, sort of after being in Australia for six years and seeing the evolution of professionalism of the sport and coming back and seeing, you know, um, 27 senior men's athletes that 80% of the, the team are, are fully professional athletes. So almost a flipping of, of what we were seeing, the evolution in Australia, uh, where, where they were trying to combine numerous uh, activities on top of their sport. Um, and then coming back to Belgium, where you see these full professional athletes. So that was a, a real um, uh, change for me and, and, and a challenge for, for myself in terms of leading in different cultures, but something that I believe is uh, super important for any international coach is to understand the culture that they're walking into, whether it be the, the, the nation that they're working with or the club that they're working with. And how did that challenge you as a, I guess, initially a player, but also a practitioner? Because I can imagine if you've come from, and I, you know, I've been in it when I was a lot younger of going, no, I'm a player. And that's all I want to be until the day that someone pulls my hockey stick off me and I can no longer use it. To then go from that to someone who goes, well, no, I do play, but I also appreciate I'm going to be a doctor or whatever far longer and that's going to be my priority. I can imagine like little things about doing extras. You know, as a player, you might be out there doing hours, hours of extras. They're like, well, no, I've got to get to lecture. Or, you know, you're out there going, oh, why don't we do this, do a bit of a debrief then, and like, well, no, I can't get until this time. And that that must challenge you as an individual in terms of your beliefs, but also I imagine to an element, if that's your focus, you could get frustrated as well and be like, why aren't you taking this seriously? So how did that, uh, yeah, how did that manifest itself for you? How did that challenge you to either, one, your thinking, or two, your attitude to people that were making those decisions? Look, I think you need to try and it's a, a very um, <laughs> it's a complex and, and multifaceted question um, because I think ultimately as, as leaders you try to create an environment where 
everybody is aligned, um, the expectations are clear. Um, but regardless of how hard you you try, there's always going to be moments that um, the individuals challenge that uh, that culture. Um, I think that um, you try to make the environment one which is exciting and and challenging and and um, a place where people want to be, you know, and that they want to be part of it. Um, I think I wrote recently um, on a post around, you know, athletes that, that I worked with that ended up winning a gold medal that, you know, they just love to come to training early. Um, I think that it is important as a leader that you're really clear about, you know, what time commitments that you're asking of the people that you work with and so that when they uh, they do arrive at training, there's no surprises. If there is any surprises, then... Um, yeah, that's where you probably come into trouble. But it's important that um yeah, you just create this environment that um that that everybody is really you know, that they're really uh, willing and wanting to be there and to be involved and they want to get the best out of each other and that and that's a that is is harder than it might seem. Um, you know, I you you mentioned beliefs, you know, I was raised where um, and my family said, you know, if you work really hard and harder than everybody, then then the rewards will come your way. And so that's sort of been ingrained in me around hard work and and arriving to work early and, and being last to leave and putting in the extra hard yards and, and going into details. But not everybody's the same as me. They don't have those same beliefs. So how do we create a, a culture and an environment where, where our uh, values and beliefs are aligned. I think that's um, it's really important, and and it's also important as a leader that you allow um, that culture to to grow organically, and and allow the athletes um, a really honest say in that, and um, allow them to shape that path. But as a as a coach and as a leader, I think you can be creative in in creating inspiration that can direct that path that can that can be motivating that can be inspiring that, that can um challenge the the athletes to, to take themselves to an area which maybe they they didn't think they were capable of achieving um and and finally probably just to touch on talking about you know doing the extras and 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 maybe having multiple things in your life that you need to uh, get to you know at elite sport that's a battle for for coaches because ultimately if you your team uh, has a desire and a, and a and a dream to to succeed and to win that olympic gold medal or to you know and that is their their dream and you're competing against other nations that are leaving no stone unturned that are um fully diving into that dream and that journey and and you know uh, i remember seeing some of our opponents talking about training on christmas day and that type of stuff and and it, it's you know that's a challenge when you're you're competing at the top level and you know the effort and the energy that other nations or other teams are are putting into their preparation um you can't expect to have that gold medal success by doing significantly less than your opponents. So it's a balance of 
of that. And, and I suppose the real challenge for us as coaches and leaders is to create an environment where people really look forward to, to coming to, to training, where they come, look forward to coming to, to this training center here where I'm sitting and, and, and they really love to be there. And if you can create that belonging, then I think that it's, um, it's something that we all aspire to achieve as, uh, as coaches. So one one bit I just want to pick up on from what you just said was around obviously giving ownership to the players, which I think modern literature, modern work practices is all around that and understanding that in this you know new generation, the athletes are the ones that are going to have to be the drivers. One thing you said was around uh, coaches or leaders being creative in a way to help enhance that process. I was just wondering if you had any examples of of particular techniques or strategies or particular events that you've done that you felt has been really beneficial to, I guess, aid in, in that endeavor. I think on the, on the pitch in terms of our sport, creating uh, exercises that challenge the athletes to be creative and seeing what they come up with. So, you know, the, the constraint led approach. So, looking at uh, how do you, you know, a very simple thing can be a, a hockey match where you can't play through the middle of the pitch so you need to go around the outside but that restricts the the space and the time that you can that you have on the outside because the defense knows that okay we only have to defend this area we don't have to worry about the middle um, but then you know maybe creating some some other uh uh, rules or other elements that you can throw in that can encourage uh, different use of, of skills or where the ball can go if it's along the ground or in the air or and seeing what they come up with and, and letting the athletes be creative in, in their thinking. Um, uh, you know, these are types of things that we try to incorporate in, in our everyday trainings and, and what we do out onto the pitch. Um, you know, there are other things you can facilitate to talk about, you know, culture and, and imagining where you might like to be in, in a hundred years, uh, as a team, what, what, what is our team going to look like in 50 or a hundred years and what, um, yeah, what, a uh, and, and how will we start that as the first pioneers? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. I haven't actually heard it put like that before in terms of actually if you go to that end goal of what would you like them to say about us 100 years now or, you know, the, the classic ones, the legacy book with the All Blacks in terms of leave the shirt in a better place than you found it. If you have that end goal of what you'd want your team to be perceived as and then kind of working back, you being that first stone almost to, to build on. I think that's a really, really interesting, unique way of doing it, which is nice. Um, on that note, in terms of, I guess, future proofing or, or development, et cetera, um, obviously real strategic from you guys in terms of your, your coaching development and identifying the right people. How does it work from a talent ID perspective with your players? So what do you, uh, I guess, go and scout? What do you go and recruit? What ages does that start at? Um, and how do you make sure that you're future-proofing yourself, both in terms of World Cups, et cetera, but also for 
four-year Olympic cycles where you're seeing maybe someone who's 29 that might be coming towards the end of their career at 33, but you've got a 17-year-old that might be making that jump up. How does that look for you guys from a strategic point of view? Yeah, we have specific uh, things that we um, look to identify in our athletes um, from age uh, 15. Um, I think they first enter our environment around 14, 15 years of age. And there are certain uh, elements that we're looking for, um, whether it be athletic uh, ability or um, technical ability or spatial awareness. Uh, there's a number of things that we have with our selection criteria. And actually, we, we just say that out of eight or nine points that an athlete has to have at least one of them out of the eight or nine. And then uh, as they go through the age groups, we ask that they develop some of the other areas. And of course, yeah, one of them, for example, could be they need to be fast. Um, doesn't mean that if you're slow that you're not selected. But, uh, you know, I have said before to, to coaches, it cannot be possible that the fastest player here is not identified. You know, we, we need to have speed. And um, it is a real challenge because, you know, with junior coaches who coach our national teams, quite often I hear uh, things like, um, oh, a really good player, but they have a poor attitude, so uh, therefore we haven't selected them. And and um, I'm dumbfounded <laughs> to the point where, um, you know, we, we've been quite specific in our feedback to our coaches that, you know, attitude is something that we feel that we can shape and, and with good leadership we can certainly help young athletes coming through uh, in, in shaping uh, their attitude. And it's part of our role as leaders to help educate. You know, it might be that... Um, you know, we, we, we miss people because of that, because they're difficult to work with and we don't know enough about them at, at that time. So in terms of um, selecting athletes, we have a selection criteria. Um, I believe that attitude is something that uh, you can shape with good leadership um, and that you can help guide. Um, of course, we want our athletes to be individuals and to bring uh, different personalities. Um, one of the other things that we do to ensure that we have a, a good pathway and to ensure that people have the, our athletes have the right opportunity to develop is that we, um, we actually have from uh, 18 to, to 21, we have what we call high potential athletes and they're ones that we've identified as, as not necessarily um, having potential to play for the senior national team, but we know they will. Um, so they've already shown enough that they've got everything to, to make the senior team. They just need to time to develop. And probably on the female side, we, we maybe start that process a little bit earlier, around 16, 17. But on the boys' side, it's 18, 19 years of age. And whether that is they need physical uh, development assistance, whether they need um, help with school, uh, whether they need... Um, extra technical assistance or they have a specialist skill that needs um, developing. So whether they could be a goalkeeper or they could be a penalty corner specialist or whatever it may be, we try to um, put that around these high potential athletes. And one of the things there is we go to them. We don't ask them to come to our training centre, maybe drive an hour in the car to do training. We, we actually go to, to their clubs or to their their home environment to help so it's not an extra burden time burden and um 
And we do that because otherwise you have 27 or 30 athletes uh, in a junior squad that you're trying to give the same attention to all 30 and it's just not possible to, to have that individualised uh, development opportunities for all 30. Um, so these are for our really targeted high potential athletes and we've got a pretty good um, success rate there of, of transitioning them through to the senior national team. Some haven't made it um, for different reasons, but I think we're, we're sitting at around 90% uh, of the athletes that we identified that way that progress through and and play a really solid role for us with our senior teams. And in terms of that initial identification, do you have a like talent ID staff that go around to local club games? Is it a recommendation thing from local clubs? What does that look like from that initial I guess, recommendation that there might be a high-performing player or high-potential player at 15 over in Antwerp or, or wherever that, yeah. that is? So probably it's a combination of the two. So if you understand the model of how our coaches work in Belgium, most of our junior team coaches, they are um, uh, also club coaches. So they see... Uh, athletes and players every weekend uh, in the club environment. Um, so in that way, they act as scouts. We have uh, regional representative competitions at age 14 and 15, uh, where they first come in uh, to be identified. And on top of that, we uh, have recommendations, we call them test players, uh, where clubs can uh, say, look, just an example, you've selected three players from my club, but I have another girl here who is actually better than those three. And she, for whatever reason, she missed the regional championships or the regional tournament. So she wasn't identified. Um, do you mind if I send that player along? Um, and and we have a test player period. And, uh, you know, I, I think every year we have one or two test players that end up making the team for the, for the summer competition. That's early on. Um, it would be pretty rare that by under 18s you have a test player come that we have never seen or have identified before but it, it can happen and in terms of that i uh individualized approach with, with the players and stuff how is that managed in terms of you mentioned you going out on occasions but how's that managed with their club team as well so is, is it the player's responsibility to be um really prescriptive of what they need from their club team or is it a dialogue between yourselves and the club team to say this is what the player needs what does that relationship look like yeah so we have a dialogue with clubs there and um one of the challenges that we have uh in in belgium is as all of the clubs professionalize you know we have players of 16 years of age training three times with their club plus a, a match with their junior team and then sitting on the bench for the senior team plus a national team training. So you're talking about four trainings and two matches uh, a week um, and, and or four training days and some of those days they train twice. Um, and, and the real challenge we have is, is players dropping out when they get to 18 or 19 years of age. So how we manage it now is um, we give um, recommendations to to the players which is very prescriptive in the amount of sessions they can do per week um, and and the amount of games they should be playing um, we also share that with the parents but for the real high potentials we'll have meetings with the club and we say okay 
This is the national team training. This is the training with the club that they'll miss. These are the trainings that they will do. And these are the minutes that they should play in the, the junior team if they're playing in the senior team. If they're not playing in the senior team, of course, they can play a, a greater minutes with the junior side. So we're quite prescriptive in that. Um, and, and there are some robust discussions at times, but we ultimately we, we try to have the athletes best interests in at heart and 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 they play a role in that you know if if for example they really enjoy the club environment they're getting a lot out of it we might decide that for a period of time it's better that they they just focus on on that particular um aspect of their game and they they maybe can stiff stick uh sorry can miss the the national team um uh, training for a period of time um so it, it's it's very individualised in, in that regard. No, perfect. And I think um, one last question after this one, but just for me, from your experience, what I guess key uh, characteristic have you have all the players that have gone on to progress into the national team exhibited? So obviously you've worked across multiple teams, multiple. Um, countries all that type of stuff is there one thing you would lay your hat on to say an international player that gets through a pathway needs to exhibit this at some point for them to be able to make that jump oh, look in the sport of hockey i think you need to have a um and it's i'm not talking about the uh just the the run of the mill it might sound strange the run of the mill international player i'm talking about um world's best players um, we've been very fortunate with our men's side to have a number of those in the last few years. Um, if you, if I'm to think about those players and the really elite players within our men's and women's teams, they have a, a, a real desire to master the technical aspect of our game and they love the sport. So not only do they want to master the, the technical side, they also love the the tactical side the the challenge the puzzle how do, how can we outsmart the opponent what are the things that make our way of play the the best way of play i remember um when i was playing for australia as well i'm not saying that i was a super elite player but i i really took pride in in the australian way of play and i, I had a, a belief in that but also um love the challenge of unpicking the 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 strategy of the the opposition and i suppose that's why what really helped me progress uh into international coaching at quite a young age but when i'm to think about the really elite players that we have now um not only do they love that skill mastery uh, element and the tactical mastery element um but they also have that creative and innovative streak to them so they start doing things that you know you've not seen before or you think oh that wasn't in the game a few years ago and now it is in the game and everybody's developed that skill because of this particular player you know that's a, a wonderful aspect to see no perfect and last question for me which is and this could be hard so apologies in advance who's the best player or coach you've worked with or against and why Oh, look, best players is really difficult. You know, I played with Jamie Dwyer, um, a hockey um, aficionados, but um, 
would know Jamie. He won the, the World Player of the Year, I think, five times. And he was my roommate for a while. And he did things that I, um, yeah, I couldn't believe at the time. You know, one-time goal shots uh, where the ball's smashed at 100 kilometres an hour towards him and he's already got the timing to swing and hit it. I was just trying to trap the ball. Um, so he, he was certainly um, ahead of his time in terms of goal scoring, I thought. I played against Turns Neuer in my my whole career and, and, and I do. Now he was he was just brilliant. Um, and, and you know, modern day, I'd say, Arthur Van Doren from the Belgian team, I, I, I've had some conversations with him about the, the game of hockey and, and he thinks on, on different levels, um, you know, challenges, you know, my my thoughts about the game and I've been around for a pretty long time in international hockey and when you have a guy that's not even 30 um, that's able to think on that level, I think um, it's quite remarkable. In terms of coaching, you know, I, you know it's... Barry Dancer was was my coach um, when I played for for many of the years with Australia and with the Australian junior team, and I I greatly admired and respected his work ethic and um, his um, determination and and um, ability to to get a team to play in the way that he he wanted them to play, and he taught me a lot about the sport of hockey. Um, but I I did really enjoy working with Shane McLeod. Um, so I, I worked as the performance director. Um, uh, with Shane at uh, the Belgian Hockey Federation and his connection with players taught me a lot about the importance of that and um, and and whilst he ha- has a wonderful strategic and tactical mind, I think it's often underestimated, uh, his uh, ability to connect with the individuals within a team um, made him stand out with, as, as a great um, head coach and leader of the group. Perfect. No, I think a really nice blend in terms of, you know, some uh, skill based, if you like, some being around hard work, but also some in that innovation, creative side. So I'd imagine, you know, that the reasons why there is probably you as a person and what would you like to see in your environment. But no, that's an Adam unconscious of the time. Really appreciate the time you've given to us and me today. And hopefully we can catch up again soon. Fantastic. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.